Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Welcome, everyone, to Faculty Feed. We have with us here today Dr. Cherie Dawson-Edwards, the Vice Provost for Faculty Affairs at the University of Louisville. We're so fortunate to have her here with us to talk about her journey to this leadership role, and she is here to help all of us think about leadership in academic settings. Cherie, welcome to Faculty Feed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Tell us about your background and how you came to the University of Louisville. I am actually a product of the University of Louisville. I have a master's degree in criminal justice, and I am an associate professor in criminal justice. I came here after a a windy road, and at one point I thought maybe I was going to teach at every university or college in Kentucky (laughs) other than UofL, but it it worked in my favor. So I, I left UofL as a graduate student and went to pursue a PhD in public policy and administration. Um, And I came back, I got married, came back, and I taught at several different places, Elizabethtown Community College, Kentucky State University, Eastern Kentucky University, and I lived in Louisville the whole time. So I commuted across the state, and it feels like I was avoiding UofL. And I'm a diehard Cards fan. I went to every football game and basketball game, even when I wasn't, you know, working here. But I wasn't avoiding UofL, I was avoiding my home department because I was afraid that if I tried to come back too early that I would be seen as a student and not as a colleague. And so um, once I I did a second stint at Kentucky State University, I was the uh, department chair of the School of Public Administration, Social Work and Criminal Justice. And during those years um, that I was teaching in other places, I, you know, got to know my former professors better at like academic conferences. So they kind of kept up with me when I was at Kentucky State. I could tell there was a shift in how they perceived me as not just their former student, but that like a peer. And so they actually came after me twice. So in 2006, they asked me, they had a position open and they asked me to come and I said no, because it was only like five years after I'd been here. Um, And then they came back. I met the then department chair at a 6 a.m. boot camp, which is, I never do that kind of thing anymore, so I'm not getting any jobs by doing 6 a.m. boot camp. So we were both chairs, and she was like, you need to come back to L." And at the time, my son, I have two children, my son was about to be in uh, kindergarten. And I didn't like the idea of commuting to Kentucky State University every day and missing kindergarten Halloween parties or the zoo. And I was like, okay, I don't really like this department chair thing anyway. So let, why don't I try U of L? And then I can like be local and I can pop into the school. And it just seemed right for me as a mom at that time. And it was. It was the right, you know, the the right decision. The schools that I listed were teaching institutions, right? And so I had to come to UofL and adjust. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes my story somewhat interesting is that I have a kind of a non-traditional path to the role that I'm in now or just period. Um, I, I, I was tenured before at another university 
under teaching, you know, and I had to shift gears a little bit and figure out how to balance my, you know, academic career. And I, I think I did a pretty decent job at that. So I've been at UofL, this will be my 11th year, and I've served in a variety of capacities. So I've been a department chair, I've directed a research institute, I've been an associate dean, um, and now I'm, I'm really pleased to be serving as the vice provost for faculty affairs. So you've been the vice provost since February of 2022. Have there been any surprises or strange things that happened during this time that you didn't anticipate? No, it's all been very predictable. No. <laughs> predictably know, good but, or bad? Yeah, Just it has not been predictable. I remember when I applied for the position, or I guess when I was interviewing for the position, I, I learned about the three buckets of faculty affairs as presented. And there's the faculty HR bucket, and there's the faculty uh, dispute resolution grievances bucket, and then there was the faculty development bucket. Well, I, you know, my background, even though I'm a criminal justice professor, my trained background is public policy and administration. So clearly I have the professional development lens. So I was like, ooh, that's great. I want to do more of that. And I was doing a lot of that as the associate dean in arts and sciences. But I somehow thought the buckets were more evenly distributed. <laughs> right? So I was like, oh, this bucket's this size. And maybe HR is a little bit more because promotion and tenure. But no, 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 no. That's the bucket. And I call the other ones teacups. Um, because I <laughs> love those things yeah. you know I don't love grievances but I, I yeah. don't avoid conflict so I think I can help people get to a place before they have to go through our like you know processes that are in the red book um, but no I'm, I'm getting the opportunity now I think to do more of the other buckets um, but yeah coming in in February was the middle of promotion and tenure um, season. And, um, you know, our, our previous vice provost for faculty affairs had stepped down in December. So there was five or six weeks lag. And then I was teaching two classes because oh, wow. uh, my, my teaching is in the spring. And yeah, we it just wasn't great timing. So there weren't any surprises as far as what to expect in the job. I'll just say it was um, a lot um, to have two classes and take on this role in a spring semester. So I think the biggest surprise though was that I thought, oh, I got through the spring. So now I can breathe. And I didn't predict all the new hires that I had to process over the summer. So I'm like, so there isn't downtime. So that's, you know, that's that was kind of a surprise that I, I thought, oh, the summer, you know, the faculty will be gone. You know, a lot of the faculty will be gone, so it'll be slower. It's not. So it, it sounds like if you've ever been to a water park with a child, you know those big buckets that fill up with water and then they dump on you? It sounds like that's what you discovered, that the HR promotion and tenure thing is that big bucket that dumps water on you, and the other ones, as you described, Liberty Teacups. Right, and I think even aside from promotion and tenure, I don't think I realized how many um, appointments and reappointments and other HR actions that yeah, happen sure. constantly. And so I never really thought of faculty affairs as being an HR professional, but it totally is an HR professional in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, that's been a prime. My office still says faculty personnel outside of it. Like my dad was a head of personnel in the 80s. And I was oh, like, oh, yeah. that just sounds so 80s. <laughs> yeah. you know? But I think Part of what I like to do is we have to do the HR part, you know, but there are other things that we can do to support and advocate for faculty. And I'd like to change the game a little bit where we're seen as 
is doing that in addition to when you need our assistance for a leave, you know, or, you know, things like that. You talked about advocating for faculty, but you also have a role um, with the American Civil uh, Liberties Union. Can you tell us a little bit about that role? I'm on the ACLU of Kentucky's board, and I'm also on the national board for the American Civil Liberties Union. I've been on Kentucky's board since 2007. I was really, really young. I really actually was kind of young then. (laughs) Um, So, but I am the elder on that board. I've served the longest um, than than any board member. The national ACLU board I've been on since 2014. Um, And so that I am an elected representative to represent Kentucky on that board. I've learned a lot from that um, particular experience. I recently, I guess it's not recently, but last year we got a new board president for the national board and she appointed me as the national deputy affiliate equity officer. So I work with all of the the state affiliate, they call it, they're not called chapters, they're called affiliates. And whenever they're looking for a new executive director, they have an executive director search. Um, it's my job to make sure that that search process is equity minded and we have a policy and I have to meet with the search committee and I have to do a search launch. I have to look at the job description to make sure that it's um, equitable and you know uh, will attract a diverse pool of candidates. And then at the end, I have to approve their hiring memo where they go through and they say the different things that they did to mitigate bias, um, the process they went through to um, screen applicants and interview people, and how they ultimately came up with their final candidate. So that work has helped me a lot with the kind of work that I'm asked to do here when we think about faculty searches or dean searches and things like that. It's easily transferable, the knowledge that I gained there. And so I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, this is her background. She's a criminal justice professor. Or maybe, oh, she has a PhD in public policy. But they don't know that parallel vita that I have that doesn't look like the academic CV. One of the things that we like to use these podcasts for is for the guests to tell stories about how they got where they ended up. We've had several guests in the past that have shared with the audience, what did it look like? You weren't born as the vice provost, turns out. And uh, when the dean of medicine came on, she wasn't born as the dean. She had a process that she went through to get there. So tell the audience what you went through. And I'm especially interested in did you aspire to getting to a position like the vice provost or do you just sort of go year to year and then opportunities show up and then you move from there and give give them some sense of how do they start planning their own careers this is a chance to make a teacup a little bit bigger here right (laughs) directly you get to pour some water in it make it bigger make it a coffee cup today so what would you say to that so i mean i would say that my trajectory was b where it's like I see opportunities and I think, you know what, would that be something that I'd want to do? Um, and I, I guess I'll start from department chair, department chair here. So I never wanted to be a department chair again, even though I was recruited to come here and I pretty sure I was the succession plan, but I constantly said no. I said no for years. Um, and can, I can you just say why you said no? Right, I can tell you exactly why. I said no because I had a surprise academic baby in 2015 (laughs) and I was like, I'm not going to make that mistake again where I feel like I'm working corporate America hours and I'm 
you know, and I'm missing the daily of my toddler or, you know, my preschooler. And then before I know it, she'll be in kindergarten. Um, I say that, but then it's interesting. I said yes right around the same time that I said yes previously. So, like, like my son was, like, three when I was became a department chair. And then my daughter was three when I became a department chair. And I thought, why did I do – why do I do this to myself? Um, but, but I said – Yes, because at the time, the, the, the then dean of arts and sciences had told us that she was going to advertise for an outside chair. And, you know, our department, like most organizations, had its own issues. You know, I didn't think they were as egregious as other people thought they were. And I knew that they were fixable. And I thought, you know what? Everybody... I think likes me, you know, they trust me, you know, so I can do this. And so I said yes, and I became the department chair in 2018. And then fast forward, not much, not much later, we had the pandemic and I had to, you know, bring the department through that, which it wasn't that challenging because they, they trusted me, you know, and so they, they listened and I listened to them and we made it through. So the associate dean position came open and it was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I didn't, I never saw myself as a DEI person, right. but even though everything that I do is through either a racial justice, social justice, or equity conscious lens, but I didn't categorize myself um, as a DEI person. I mean, one of my, a couple of colleagues actually asked me if I was going to apply. I was like, no, I've only been chair for like a year and a half. Like, why do I need to do that? It's not that much more money, you know, but it was 2020. It was in the midst of the racial justice protests. I am a criminal justice professor who teaches social and restorative justice, you know, but I was also the chair and we had the Southern Police Institute underneath us. So I had students protesting and students who were, you know, policing the protest, you know, and it was very difficult place for me to sit. And I thought, well, if I get out of this chair position, <laughs> then I don't have to be as quiet as I have to be and be as neutral as I, you know, have to be as an administrator in the Department of Criminal Justice. And so I, I applied for the associate dean position and got that. Um, but shortly after I got into that position, we had a dean search. And I remember, I wasn't on the committee or anything, but when the candidates came, we got to see their CVs or whatnot. And I was like, I don't know why I haven't thought about being a dean. <laughs> you know, I didn't even think about it. I think, you know, if I, I step back and talk about, like, what it means to be a woman. So I feel like sometimes women think we have to go further than we need to, or we need to wait, or we need to have this under our belt before we go to the next stage. And I remember seeing the finalists and thinking, my Vita looks very similar, if maybe not a little better than some of, some of them, you know. Yeah. And... I said, okay, I'm going to chill. I'm going to do this, you know, for a little bit. And then, of course, you start getting, you know, ex you know, search firms coming after you. And I ignored them. I had some when I was a chair, too. But I was like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere if kids in school. Um, and I decided, you know what, what if I just tested the waters? And I'm going to apply for two very different types of schools, um, you know, one in R1, one in historically black college and university, because I've been at both places. So let's just see if I, if I, you know, how it goes. And I thought, you know, if it doesn't go well, at least it's professional development. And I've gotten myself, I haven't interviewed for a job in forever, you know. And so I did. I tested the waters. And um, I was a finalist at the R1. And I got a job offer for the HBCU, but it just wasn't enough for me to change my life. And that was last fall. And then when I decided not to go to, to that one, um, this position came up and five people sent it to me. And I was like, why Whoa. would you say I <laughs> would want to do a Tracy 
else does. Like, why? Like, why would you think that? And they were like, just read it. And I read the actual job description instead of just assuming it was something that I wouldn't or couldn't do. And I was like, oh, I've done that. I can do that. Oh, I have lots of thoughts about that. Oh, you know what? Maybe I should. Maybe I should put together an application. You know, um, and you don't know how well something fits until you really think about it. And and it it was. It was such an easy fit for me. Um, and so, no, I did not wake up as a toddler and say, I want to be vice provost of faculty affairs when I grow up. Yeah. Um, but I will say, you know, last fall when I started considering this role and really thinking about what change looks like at a big institution, why not try to situate yourself in a place where you can have a bigger impact? And I loved being a chair because I had that was my span of control, right? right? And I can make little grassroots changes. But my voice is also important on a bigger stage. And I feel like um, where we are right now in our university, the folks that are on that stage, they they hear me. And I have voice and agency, and I think that that's important. And I wouldn't be doing this role if I didn't. You mentioned restorative justice. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that a lot of people on HSC, which is primarily who our office serves, maybe don't know what restorative justice is and how it might work in a university setting too. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I've been using restorative justice principles for a long time. I, I mean, I'm a criminal justice professor um, and I used to teach juvenile justice. And juvenile justice in other countries, like for instance, New Zealand, they like totally scrapped their juvenile justice process and and replaced it um, with restorative justice. So restorative justice is a a different way of looking at conflict, right, and harm. And so, so many times, you know, I talked about grievances and dispute resolution a little bit. Um, So many times we think that, oh, you violated the rule, you know, you should be punished for violating the rule. Well, restorative justice flips that and says, you know what, you harmed someone. You need to the harm. You know, we don't necessarily care about the rule, but the harm that you cause needs to be repaired. And so it's a different way of holding um, wrongdoers or the people that harm people accountable than a system um, where they don't have to really have any accountability. They just have to do the disciplinary action, right? And so restorative justice, you know, off, you know, is often used in the criminal justice system or in the school settings. But it also can be used in work settings. And I can also uh, uh, go back to the ACLU. The National ACLU has a restorative, like they have an arm of their like administration that does restorative uh, work. And it's basically to keep people from having to grieve or even to have to mediate. It's, it's a way that if people learn to communicate and talk to each other in uh, healthy ways, then you don't have to go down the road of the red book, you know? And so if we can get, to me, if we can get at the grass roots level, whether it's chairs or or deans, um, the ability to repair harm in relationships, then some, I remember one time I told some of my colleagues, I said, you all have been um, in a beef, you've been in, in a, you know, conflict longer than some of our assistant professors have been alive. Like, so you're, you've been mad for 30 something years, you know, like, what if there had been a restorative process so the harm could be repaired but there hasn't been and so you just have been mad at each other for 30 years you know and so um it is a it is a concept that i think is important for dispute resolution to prevent the need to have dispute resolution that doesn't mean that it's replacing the red book anybody like it's not i'm not even proposing to add it to it but it certainly is a tool i think in the workplace that can prevent um things from festering and getting worse so given the, the large size of the bucket 
of HR that you have discovered, it strikes me that training in a criminal justice world might be the perfect training to deal with the conflict that inevitably shows up in an Office of Faculty Affairs. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, a lot of things that I think would like freak other people out. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, it's fine. We're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Um, but I was like that as a, a chair, too. Like when they would say, oh, they said they're gonna, this is going to happen. I'm like, let's not freak out until it's time to freak out. Right. And so I'm very good at compartmentalizing, but also de-escalating things. So, you know, folks don't spiral, you know, out, out of control. So, yes, I would say training uh, criminal justice practitioners. And I've done a lot in K through 12 schools. Yeah. And those are like many cities, you yes. know, yes. with a mayor and, you know, constituents. And so um, I think I'm well prepared for that, that part for sure. I consider myself a community builder, I'm a restorative justice practitioner, and I'm a social change agent. So what I didn't say is I also direct a social change program in arts and science. It's a small minor, but um, you know, I, I think about things from a, a social change perspective. How do we make things better? How do we make this a, a great place to work for everybody, right? And so I, con I think I constantly think about that pillar every day. Um, and what people should know is that and aside from the HR and the promotion and tenure or the grievance or the professional development, that I, it's important for me also to help build community. And the faculty are my community, right? And so what I envision is a more forward-facing office. So I've been a, a going to faculty retreats, new faculty orientations at different units. I'm trying to be more than just a name that shows up on an email every now and then, or that you see in, you know, wh wherever you see see my name. But that there's not even just a name with a face, but there's a name, face, and personality. Like you know, you know me. And so if you can know me, then you can maybe trust me. And that means that you can trust to tell me what your needs are. You know, I was at a meeting uh, the other day and someone said like is there a safe way for us to talk to somebody about things that we might be experiencing in our unit and I was like well I'm safe but I guess you don't see me that way but like yeah. what does that look like right. you know people are like oh what about a you know anonymous form I was like that that form is not going to give me enough information to help you, you know, so what do you need for me to do for me to be a safe space for faculty who need guidance and advocacy and support? And so I challenge that, you know, particular, you know, part of segment of campus and say, like, I need you to tell me what you need. It's not it's not for me to figure that out. Like, I need I'm a grassroots person. I believe that everything doesn't come from the top, that you get your information so that you can make decisions and advocacy um, from the folks that are filling it or the, the most impacted people. And our faculty are <laughs> impacted people. So I want to hear from them. Um, so I think that is one thing people wouldn't know if they thought about faculty affairs. Because historically, if we were called faculty personnel, you go to personnel when there's a problem. Or, you know, and, and I, don't want, I, I don't want people to just know me because they've had a problem. So we always ask our guests to challenge our listeners to do something after they hear this podcast. So after the listeners have heard you tell your story, what would you challenge them to do? Well, since I'm a community builder um, and I want people to believe and feel like this is a great place to work, um, I, you know, I, I think oftentimes people frame things with our like strategic plan or cardinal principles or, you know, those things. And. And I think of when I think about the cardinal principles, I think about the, a community of care. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, and I think about the diversity we have amongst our, our faculty and, and other folks on campus. And, um, you know, one of the things that concerned me even before I was in this position is the coach survey results mm -hmm. that talked about departmental collegiality being um, a point, a pain point for folks. I want everyone to think about how we all play a role in making this a great place to work. You know, it, it can't just be upper administration or it can't just be a dean. It's, it's all of us. It's the faculty. You know, you have to think about what you can do to make this a better place um, for your colleagues to be, that they feel like they belong, that they have voice and agency. And so my challenge is for people to be self-reflective and think about what their individual role is, is in, in continuing to make this a great place to work and to improve collegiality, particularly um, at their, their department level, but throughout the whole university. Thank you so much for joining us today on Faculty Feed. Uh, your, your personality, your enthusiasm, your passion really shine through. And uh, thank you for taking this role on. Thank you for being trained in criminal justice. It sounds like that's something. I'm ready for anything. You're no, ready no, for no, anything to show up in that office. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. Next week on Faculty Feed, we talk with two Liam graduates from our fifth cohort, Dr. Hannah Fisher and Adam Hall. These two worked on a team project in Liam that addressed a long-standing problem: interdisciplinary training for medical professionals. Hear how they used a unique product called Peruzol to develop asynchronous interdisciplinary training across disciplines. You won't want to miss this one. It's going to be great. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at factfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.